If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, of, uh, of the Bible with you, if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to take a look at verses 28 through 34 of Mark chapter 12. And as you're turning there, uh, we have been uh, going through a series together. Dwayne's been going through a series with us together on the Ten Commandments. Uh, and we've been thinking about the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20 and the people of Israel and, uh, and Moses. And this morning, what I thought would be a good idea to cap off that series would be to, to look at kind of Jesus's summary of the Ten Commandments. Um, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a look at Mark 12, Mark's account of Jesus's summary uh, of these commandments. So this is God's word for us uh, this morning. And because it's God's word, it means that you can bank your entire life on it. Mark 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbors yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Uh, let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, that you love us so much, uh, that you want to commune with us, that you want to communicate uh, with us, and you do that through your word. And so we pray this morning um, that as we come to this text in Mark chapter 12, Father, that you would work into us deeper and deeper a sense of our own sin and our need, and our brokenness. And Holy Spirit, would you make Jesus more believable and beautiful to us? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this morning, I want to begin thinking about this text together by asking you a question. Um, so I want us to kind of entertain this, this question together. And here is the question. What is the most important thing? What's the most important thing? What's the most important thing to you? What is the thing that gets you the most excited, that you get jazzed about? Uh, what are the things that uh, maybe you worry about? What are the things that, you, that keep you awake at night? <laughs> that when you lay in bed and you're trying to go to sleep, that occupy your mind? For me, um, I can name several things that feel most important to me. Uh, one of those is, uh, is having kids and, uh, and wanting them to grow and to mature and become independent and all of those things. Money can be something that's on my mind often. Do we have enough of it? How can I get more? Um, those are all kinds of things that, that occupy our mind. Maybe you're here this morning and you are asking really big questions like, well, what really is the most important thing? 
what really is. Maybe that's why you're here this morning, is that you are asking that kind of question. Wherever we are, uh, wherever you find yourself in thinking about that, I think that all of us can kind of sit right at the feet of this interaction that's happening in Mark 12 between this scribe and Jesus. And so this morning, as we go through Mark 12, I want us to think about three things uh, together. So if you're an outline person, uh, this is the outline this morning. So I want us to think about the question, the answer, and then I've got some takeaways for us. So the question, the answer, and takeaways. So let's start with the question. In order to get into this interaction, we got to know a little bit about the background of what's going on uh, in Mark's gospel here. We are entering into the last week of Jesus's life. He is on his way to go to uh, the cross and to die uh, for the sins of his people and to purchase forgiveness and redemption and life. And so it's the last week of Jesus's life. So he's come into Jerusalem and he's kind of been in and out of the temple and other religious spaces. And he's been interacting with, uh, with the, the, the religious elite the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and Sadducees have been kind of trying to play this, this, this game of gotcha with Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Like where you're trying to stump somebody um, or you're trying to catch them or trap them. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, it literally says that they were trying to trap Jesus during all this. So you've got these Pharisees and these Sadducees and they're coming at Jesus. They're trying to corner him. They're trying to back him into a corner. They're trying to trap him and to, to catch him. And in Mark's account, we get introduced to this scribe who seems to be coming alongside into these religious spaces, hearing the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to trap Jesus. And he hears Jesus's answers and he becomes pretty intrigued. Now, a scribe is someone whose job it was to study and to teach God's word, to study and to teach the law. So this scribe, his entire life, his whole life, he has given over his life to the study of God's word and to teaching God's word. And he hears Jesus answering all of these questions pertaining to God's word, pertaining to the law and everything. And he's kind of impressed with this guy. He hears these answers and he's like, huh, he seems to know a little bit of what he is talking about. And we know from other literature in the ancient Near East that, uh, that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had taken uh, God's word in the first five books, the Pentateuch, and they had come up with basically a little over 600 commands to follow. And so the scribe comes across to us as kind of having this burning question deep down inside, and maybe he has encountered someone who might actually have the answer to it. Think of it like this. Um, if you were a, a budding football star, quarterback, obviously not me, um, but some of you, uh, maybe, if you, were, if you were a budding football star, a, a budding quarterback, and you happen to find yourself uh, in a room with John Elway, right? You would be thinking to yourself, man, I've got, I've got some questions that I want to ask this guy, right? And you're probably not going to ask him questions about like how to get to the grocery store or, or something like that. You are going to think about what is the best question that I could ask John Elway as someone who wants to be a great quarterback? 
Well, the scribe's in the same situation. And so he asks the highest question that he can possibly think of. He aims really high with his question. He asks the most important question. And notice that most of the questions that have been coming from the Pharisees and Sadducees from before, they were really kind of like accusing Jesus. They were accusatory. They were trying to come at him. But the scribe here, he comes across to us as being sincere, as being someone who has a genuine desire to hear an answer to his question. And so he risked it. He risked it. And he asked. And we see that in verse 28. He asked his question, which commandment is the most important commandment of all? What is most important, Jesus? What's the most important thing? Now remember this scribe, his job, his whole life is about studying the law, about studying God's word. So he's asking Jesus, Jesus, what is the most important thing in all of life? He aims as high as he can. Jesus hears this question. Here's the nature of it. Seems really sincere. And unlike the other questions he's been receiving to this point, and Jesus gives a very clear answer. So that's the question. Let's hear Jesus' answer, the response. Jesus gives us a two-part response, a two-part answer to this question. The first one, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. He says, look, here's the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all your might. With all your strength, Jesus goes on. What Jesus is doing is he's actually drawing on Moses' own summation of the Ten Commandments. See, because in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses laid out the Ten Commandments just as we get it in Exodus 20. And then in Deuteronomy 6, Moses comes back and he says, this is it. This is what encapsulates the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have as God's people are preparing to go into the land that he's promised them. Part one, part one of the answer is love God with everything. All that you are, all that you have in every conceivable way. Give God your heart. Give God your soul, the deepest parts of yourself. Give God your mind. Give God your mind, give God your, your, your body, your strength, your physical body even belongs to God. Give yourself to God in every conceivable way. And what Jesus is doing is he's summarizing those first four commands, those commands that are focused on how we relate to God, where God gives his word to Moses and says, look, there's, there's not supposed to be any other gods other than me. I am the only one. Also, you only worship me. Your worship doesn't belong to anything or anyone else, but only to me. And you're to worship the way that I say that you're supposed to worship because I'm God and you're not. And also take care of God's name. Take care of God's name. Jesus is saying, give yourself to God, all that you are, all that you have belongs to God. He is the one who made you. He is the one who sustains 
you. That's part one of Jesus' answer. And you notice how Jesus actually almost rejects the premise of the question. The scribe says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, like it's not just one. There's a two-part answer here. So the second part is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus is doing there is he's drawing on Leviticus 19.18. He quotes it literally. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Showing us that following God's word and loving God and following God and his law means that we will love those whom he has made. God has, he has purposed, he has designed the world to work in such a way that those who bear his image in his world are supposed to love one another. You and I are supposed to love one another. That's what he's communicating to this scribe. In so many ways, it's a summary of commands five through 10, right? You're not to murder Jesus even doubles down, says you're not, you're not actually harbor any hatred in your heart. As a matter of fact, earlier in Leviticus 19, it says that we're not to harbor hatred in our heart. You're not to commit adultery. You, you're, you're not to go after someone whom God has not entrusted to you in marriage. You are not to steal. Don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. You're to honor and obey those whom God has put over you, your parents. You are not to bear false witness. You're to take care to protect other people's names as well too and not slander. And you're not to covet anything that God has not entrusted to you. Jesus is saying here, do not harbor anger, bitterness, greed, envy toward anyone, but actively promote life actively promote the good of other image bearers of God. Jesus says, there's nothing greater than these. Nothing greater than these to love your God with everything that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's the interaction that we see between the scribe and Jesus, the question and the answer. So let's think together about some takeaways that we might have from this passage. Here's the first takeaway. The first takeaway for us is this. We are made for a relationship with God. We're made for a relationship with God. Every human being, we are made for a relationship with God. In 2005, uh, Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes, and the interviewer was a guy named Steve Croft. And Steve Croft was uh, interviewing Tom Brady. This was shortly after the Patriots had won their third uh, Super Bowl, I think in four or five years. Uh, and Steve Croft was naming to Tom Brady like all of his accolades. You've won three Super Bowls. You've been the MVP of however many Super Bowls. You've been the MVP of the league. At the time, he was the most eligible bachelor in the world. Um, so what did he do? He ended up marrying a supermodel. So, um, so he's naming all these accolades. You've made all of this money. Like everywhere you go, people look at you and they think, man, it's Tom Brady, this guy is awesome. And it's really interesting that Tom Brady, in this interaction, he responds and he says, you know, yeah, all that stuff is really, like, that's really great. But there's gotta be more than this. And Steve Croft says, well, what do you think it is? And Tom Brady says, I don't know. I wish that I did, but I don't know. But there's got to be something more than this. 
And what that interaction illustrates, even back in 2005, and I think it's ramped up even more, is that we live in a, in a cultural moment where, where the main narrative of our lives, meaning like what's communicated to us as the purpose and meaning of our lives, is self-fulfillment. We live in a day and age where self-fulfillment is like the end-all and be-all of life. That's what we hear all of the time. That life is about serving my aspirations, my goals, the achievements that I want to have. We even have these short phrases where we communicate this like this, you do you, right? I mean, what's that communicating? Like, you do your thing. You focus on self. You fulfill self, your goals, your aspirations, the things that you want. In 2007, uh, a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor, who's kind of widely considered in the Western world one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, he wrote this really thick book called A Secular Age. And In that book, what he does is he describes basically the highest values and commitments of modern and post-modern culture. And what he does is he actually picks up on this feeling that there must be more out there. He picks up on this feeling that the narrative of self-fulfillment is not enough. And this is what he says. We are living in a world where there is a widespread sense of loss here. If not always of God, then at least of meaning. Taylor is picking up on this idea that we live in a world where the highest value is self-fulfillment, but we can't escape this feeling that there must be something more. He goes on to describe in his book that we live in a culture that is haunted by the transcendent, that it's always back there, that it's always haunting us, this this gut feeling deep down that there's got to be something bigger and better than self. And what Jesus is saying in this interaction is, yes, absolutely, your life, my life is not about self and not about self-fulfillment. There is something bigger than self-fulfillment. There is something bigger than our personal pursuits, than our gain, our personal satisfaction, our knowledge, our achievements. Hard as we might try to find our purpose and our meaning in fulfilling self, it's never enough. There's always something else. There's always more. It never pays off in the way that we think that it will. I think that's true for everybody. Whether you're here this morning and you would say that you're a follower of Jesus or you're here this morning and you're just asking questions about Christianity and about the Bible and about Jesus, we all are tempted to live our lives revolved around self. We're all tempted toward self-fulfillment. What's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? In my life, we've moved our entire family from everything that we know in North Carolina in the hopes of planning a church in Denver. And let me tell you, I get really excited about that, and I also get really nervous and anxious and worried about that, right? What if this thing doesn't go off? I do lay awake at night 
in bed thinking about that. What is the most important thing? And the truth of the matter is, is really when I'm doing that, I, I, I feel like life is about me. Life is about focusing on self, self-fulfillment, my gain, my achievements, what I can do for Jesus, rather than recognizing what Jesus has done for me. Other ways, I want you all to think well of me, right? And what Jesus does is he cuts right to our hearts, and he cuts right to the heart of the scribe here. And he says, look, if you miss this, if you miss this, that you were made for God, that you were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, that your life is made for God, that it's not about self, but it's about the God who made you and sustains you. If you miss that, you will miss everything else. And everything in your life will ultimately, ultimately you will come to the end of your rope and it'll feel hollow and it'll feel empty. So first takeaway, we're made for a relationship with God, to relate to God. The second, you might can guess, we're made for a relationship with each other. This is the neighbor love that Jesus talks about here, loving our neighbor as ourself. We are made for a relationship with each other. Now, again, we have to think very deeply about how we think about love in our culture to really understand what's going on here with Jesus. Because in our current cultural climate, I think that we think about love as unqualified affirmation. Here's what I mean by that. Only affirm me. I don't want any pushback. Let me be me. You do you. I I only want affirmation, unqualified affirmation without any sort of pushback at all. You can see it all over the place. We can see it all over the place. And look, we contribute to it. We are a part of the culture, too. We make the culture up. We want unqualified affirmation. We don't want to have to deal with the heart of somebody possibly pushing back on us. But here's the thing. That's not enough either. It's not enough. I've, I've been in ministry for a number of years and I've had the, the opportunity to walk alongside families and individuals um, who are struggling with addictions. Um, whether that's sexual addictions or substance abuse or addicted to work, <laughs> addicted to materials, addicted to food, uh, all kinds of things. And if you've ever walked alongside an addict or you've ever struggled with addiction yourself or you in a family that, that, that there is someone who struggles with addiction, you know, you know that unqualified affirmation is not helpful. That's not helpful. It's not helpful to tell an addict, you do you, you just do your thing. No, that's terrible. That's awful because you're telling someone to give themselves over to something that's going to kill them. Unqualified affirmation is not love. There must be something thicker. There must be something deeper than unqualified affirmation. And what Jesus calls us to in neighbor love here, Jesus is calling us to open ourselves up, to let people in. Followers of Jesus, do you do this? 
Are you opening yourself up to each other? Are you letting people in? Are you in thick, deep relationships? Or are most of your relationships just really shallow, really on the surface, really thin? Are we in the kinds of relationships where we're open to hearing, that's wrong? You're destroying your family. You're hurting your friends. You're hurting yourself. Your workaholism is killing your family. Your sexual addiction is, is, is killing your spouse. Your substance abuse addiction is killing your friends and you're killing yourself. Are, are, are we in the kinds of relationships where someone can look at us and say, you're hurting yourself. That's wrong. That you're trying to have self-fulfillment at the expense of everyone else. Are you in the kinds of relationships where you love others enough to point those things out? It goes both ways. We do this in parenting all the time, right? I mean, if one of our children starts to dart out and run into the street, we grab them. No, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to kill yourself. Don't do that. Oftentimes, Carrie and I, Carrie and I with, with our own children, we, we, we try to say to them, we love you too much to let you just get away with not telling the truth. We love you too much to let you just hurt your brother or sister. We know what this is like, but do we have those kinds of relationships? Or do those just exist in our parenting? Do we have those kinds of relationships with each other where we, where we can risk it enough to point out, hey, that's wrong. You're hurting yourself. If you're here this morning and you're just, you're, you are curious about Jesus and about Christianity and you're asking questions about Jesus, do you find yourself in the place of the scribe here? Asking what's the most important thing? Are, are you open to hearing that maybe, just a suggestion, that maybe the foundation that you're building is not going to work. It's not going to be enough. And that you might even be hurting yourself and hurting others. Are you willing to consider that? Just a suggestion. Well, there's another layer to this made for relationship with each other as well, too. Jesus actually digs down even deeper. You see, because Jesus is not just calling us to love those that we like. <laughs> And those that we're in relationships with, but even those that we don't. Even those that we would maybe even consider enemies. Jesus is asked this same question in Luke's account of Jesus' life and in Luke's gospel. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus is asked this question by a lawyer, not a scribe. And Jesus responds in the same way that he does to the scribe here. And then the lawyer follows up and says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell this parable that you might be familiar with. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where this Jewish guy is walking along a road and some robbers come and they beat him up and they take everything that he has and they, they leave him there for dead. He's beaten so bad he's within an inch of, his, inch of his life. And then Jesus tells of a priest, a Jewish priest who comes by and sees him and he just walks right on past. And then a Levite Someone who would have also been a religious person would walk by this guy who's beaten within an inch of his life, 
one of his fellow brothers and just walk on past. And then there's this guy, a Samaritan, who comes along with his donkey. And in those days, the Jewish people did not think very highly of Samaritans. They sort of thought of Samaritans as half-breeds. The Jewish people were very racist when it came to the Samaritans. And they were even enemies, you could say. And this Samaritan comes by on his donkey, and he sees this man beaten within an inch of his life. And he goes, and he picks him up, puts him on his donkey, and then he totes him into town and takes him to an inn. And he goes to the keeper of the inn, and he says, Look, all of his room and board, put it on my tab. He also binds up his wounds, like he heals him. He, he, he gets him cleaned up and everything. Any medical bills, they're mine. Put it on me. And what Jesus is saying is like, this whole love your neighbor, it doesn't just extend to the people that you like. It even extends to those that you might even consider your enemies. Jesus is calling us to love even our enemies. Jesus is calling us to cherish every single human being that we meet. To want and to desire their good and actually to actively pursue the good of others. So, are you building and pursuing relationships with people not like you? Are you pursuing people who might have uh, a different um, political conviction than you? Are you pursuing people who might have a different religious conviction than you? Are you pursuing relationships with people who might significantly disagree with you? Or are you just kind of harboring anger and harboring bitterness and hatred? siloing yourself off over here and surrounding yourself with people who just agree with everything that you agree with. Because Jesus is saying that's not really neighbor love. Neighbor love pushes us outward. Neighbor love pushes us towards those who wouldn't necessarily agree with us. We should all be praying that God would give us a heart for even those that we might detest. Well, We're made for relationship with God. We're made for relationship with each other. Here's our third takeaway. The greatest one. The greatest one. This is our third takeaway. And truthfully, if we miss this takeaway, we actually miss the other two. We won't get those right. We won't appropriately love God and love neighbor if we miss the greatest one here. You see, because our encounter doesn't stop with Jesus' answer, it actually goes a little bit further. Look back with me at verses 32 through 34. You see, the scribe, he responds to Jesus' response. And the scribe said to Jesus, You're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been bombarded with questions about God's word, bombarded with questions about the law. 
He's having to navigate traps and gotcha moments all over the place. Well, what about this, Jesus? What about that law? What about this command? What about that issue? How are you going to respond to that? You see, Jesus is talking to people who thought that they could earn their way into God's favor, which is actually just another version of self-fulfillment, by the way, because it's all self-reliance. It's all about me and what I'm doing and what I'm bringing to the table. Jesus was surrounded by people who thought that they could earn their way into God's favor, into life, into fulfillment, into the kingdom. Jesus is not giving us this command so that we could figure out how to earn our own way in. Jesus says it doesn't work like that. Jesus is showing us and the scribe, you want to know the greatest command? But what you really need is the greatest one. What you really need is me. You're not far from the kingdom, but you can't earn your way in. There's only one way into the kingdom, and it's through Jesus. There's only one way into life. There's only one way into purpose, into meaning, into thick, deep relationships, and it's Jesus. It is through Jesus, and that is exactly what Jesus is communicating here to this scribe and to us. Jesus is the only one who has truly and fully loved God with all that he is and everything that he has. And he is the only one who has loved his neighbor fully, fully obeying the Father. Everything that the Father asked of Jesus, he followed, he obeyed even all the way to the cross. And he wholeheartedly gave himself for his people, for you, for me, For his enemies. Jesus is the only one who's actually fulfilled this. We fail at this all the time. Every single one of us in here has laid awake in our beds at night thinking about the most important thing being something other than God. We fail at loving our neighbor. How many times have we just siloed ourselves off and and surrounded ourselves with people who just agree with us? because I don't want to have to deal with that out there. How many times have we had the opportunities to really open up to a friend, but we've held back? We've all failed at loving God and loving neighbor. Jesus is the only one who's actually kept these commands and he's done it for you and for me so that we would have life and we would have it abundantly in him. He's done it for a people bent on serving self and self-fulfillment. Jesus gives himself fully and openly to us without holding anything back. His body was broken and his blood was shed on the cross for you and for me that we would have life in him. He even became all of our failures for us. All of the attempts at living life for self, Jesus became that. All of the ways in which we define love by unqualified affirmation, Jesus became that for you and for me. He died for us to give us life eternally. And it's only, don't miss this, it is only when we receive and follow Jesus that we can rightly and appropriately pursue loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. 
we have to get into Jesus. That's what Jesus is showing the scribe here. That's what he's showing you and me. You're not far from the kingdom, but I'm the only way in. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection is what saves us and motivates us to want life the way that God wants life for us, to pursue thick relationships with one another, to pursue loving God with everything that we have, giving ourselves in every conceivable way to our God. What's the most important thing? The most important thing is this, whether for the first or the thousandth time, follow Jesus. Receive his finished work for you. Follow him, his life, his death, his resurrection. And that's actually what brings us to the table this morning. You see, because this is the place where we take in Jesus with all of our senses. <laughs> that God wants us to not just hear the gospel and take it in, but to feed on the gospel. To touch, to taste, to smell, to see Jesus' death for you and for me, for us. See, on the night in which Jesus betrayed, actually not too many nights after this encounter in Mark, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples and he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as we partake of this meal, as we come and eat of the body and the blood, what we are doing is we are proclaiming the Lord Jesus' death until he comes again. This meal is a, is a picture of what Christ has done for us. It's a picture of Jesus wholeheartedly giving himself to us, to the Father and to us that we would be God's people that we would be forgiven, that we would have redemption. And it's also a promise. It's a promise that Jesus isn't done with us yet. In his grace, he will continue to work on us and in us to show us the depth of our sin and the depth of our need for him. It's a picture of what Christ has done and it's a promise that he's not finished with us. He's gonna continue to grow us. If you're here this morning and you belong to the Lord Jesus, you've been baptized, you've joined yourself to his church, then this meal is for you. You need it. I need it. We need it. We need to take this. God promises us that his grace is being imparted to us in this meal. But if you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you belong to the Lord Jesus, then we wouldn't want you to partake and to participate in something that's not true of what you actually believe. And so we would ask that you let these elements just pass you by. And instead, what we would encourage you to do is think about Jesus. Consider the free offer of the gospel for you, your life in his, his life for yours. 
Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this meal that you have given us, that you want us to taste and to touch and to smell the gospel and to take it in as a reminder that we cannot go a single moment of a single day without Jesus. And so we pray that you would use these common elements of bread and wine and you would grow us in your grace. And we know that you will. We pray this in confidence because Holy Spirit, you promise us that you will grow us in Jesus. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. If you'll take your cup that you have there in front of you and you can pull off this top layer that's on it and the the little wafer is right there. One day, beloved, we're gonna come to the table. One day, it's gonna happen. But beloved, this is the body of Christ broken for you and for me. Let's take and eat and remember together. Peel off that second layer there. Oh boy, here we go. Beloved, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink together. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this meal that you have given us. And we pray that you would use it to grow us in your grace as we know that you will. And we pray these things in Christ's name.